Everyone, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon, which presents these community events, it is my privilege and pleasure to welcome all of you to the second event in our 2001, 2000, or 2021, excuse me, 2022 Faith and Life Lecture Series. Thanks to all of you for coming out uh, to hear about an important topic. I also want to thank all of you who are watching and joining us online. That's something that has obviously taken off in the last year and a half or two, and we're very grateful uh, for your presence as well. Uh, it, can I ask if anyone is new to Faith and Life? Is anyone here for the first time? Okay, a few. A special welcome to all of you. Um, so since uh, 2003, I guess, 2002-2003, uh, we have been hosting five speakers every year. So I was just telling our speaker tonight that I believe this is our 90... I think I had it wrong. Someone do the math. This is the second in the 19th year. It's some, something in the 90s. When you figure it out, let me know. Um, and we've cast a very broad net in terms of uh, who has come. The, the baseline is that everyone who comes and speaks is a Christian. I will tell you that we have had people from every conceivable Christian tradition. And almost all of our speakers, not all of them, but the vast majority have been lay people. So we've had um, politicians, we've had authors and bloggers and lawyers and business and nonprofit executives. We've had counselors, best-selling authors. Um, the idea is to bring Christians in to talk about how faith interacts or intersects with the work that they do. And tonight we're delighted to address a topic that we're actually trying to take more seriously here at St. Philip the Deacon. We started thinking more seriously about it before COVID. And of course, it's only grown in significance and importance since the pandemic. Um, I'm going to introduce our speaker in just a second, but let me tell you that the basic flow of the evening uh, is that she will speak for 45 or 50 minutes, something like that. After that, we'll have the opportunity to let all of you, uh, both online and in person, ask whatever questions you might have for 15, 20 minutes. So I do want you to be thinking about questions you can ask of her. Uh, as you will hear, she is the executive director of a Twin Cities-based organization called Mental Health Connect. She's going to share a little bit about how she got there. I always like to say one or two things about our speakers that are sort of, sort of off of the traditional biography. And so in her case, uh, she shared with me just a few minutes ago that she used to work in accounting for both the Minnesota Timberwolves. I don't think she takes credit for their wins and losses, although I don't know how they're doing these days. Um, and also she did accounting uh, for a guy named Tony Robbins. Some of you may have heard of Tony Robbins. So she worked closely with him for a while at least. So we are delighted to welcome Harry. Will you join me in welcoming Vicki Elliott? Good evening. Thank you for being here. I was driving over here tonight and I was just uh, thinking how great it is that it um, is not snowing yet and the roads aren't icy. Well, thank you for attending in person. And if you're virtual, thank you for being virtual as well. I want to point out what an amazing gift it is to have both of these options available to us at this time. You could be at home and comfortable, or you could be here and with other people. 
Tonight is in honor of a handful of young people that have touched my life just this week. Alex, Charlie, Luke, Kyle, Courtney, and Jake. So I discovered a few weeks ago as I was working on my presentation for tonight that I am presenting here at the Faith and Life series between Ray Suarez, who is a world-renowned famous journalist, and Michael Curry, who is bishop of the entire Episcopal Church. Okay, no pressure. As you'll hear about more, as you'll hear more about tonight, I like to figure out why things happen. I'm always searching for connection and meaning. So presenting between the topics of journalism and faith, I must be called to tell a great story that leads to faith, as sort of a bridge between these two presenters. Tonight, you'll discover that I'm usually trying to figure out why things happen and what is the purpose of it. After so many goosebump prayer answered healing situations, it has become the norm for me. This curiosity has led me off my path and directed me to paths that I would have never anticipated. I'm not always successful at figuring out why, because I think some things are just not meant to be figured out. But a little bit more about that later. But I'll share with you some secrets that I've learned and that many important things in life do have a why. Many times I'm searching and watching because I'm just afraid of missing a miracle that may be unfolding before me. And there have been many. Thank you for having me speak tonight as I share my story of faith and mental health and being made whole, a story where many of you may hear parts of your own story. Why? Because almost half of adults will experience a mental illness during their lifetime. Half of us. Last year, it was reported 40% of U.S. adults are struggling with mental health or substance use. One in six U.S. youth aged 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. Half of all lifetime mental illness begins at age 14, and 75% by the age of 24. Depression alone costs a nation $210.5 billion annually. We're not alone. We're going to discuss how life can be and is meant to be transformed. Not just ideas and concepts, but how to make that happen. We get a lot of suggestions on how to live life and be better, don't we? There's so many books on just be resilient or use your superpower, think happy thoughts. There have been numerous podcasts, books, and other things written about those topics hoping to improve our outlook on life, make people successful, happy, or maybe just more pleasant. I want you to leave here tonight with some ideas on how to improve your mental health and ways that you can feel whole. So I'm a person who has lived a fairly ordinary life, but like most ordinary people, I've had to deal with challenges and tough situations. 
Every one of you has a story. Some good, bad, and in between. Listen to my story, how things have unfolded, and why I'm here tonight. I'll begin my story tonight when I'm age 25. It's a little while ago. <laughs> it's a snowy, cold, dark February night, and I'm having my first child. It's a baby boy. This wasn't just any baby. This was my baby. And we all think that, don't we? He was perfect, and he was special, and he was going to do great things. And it would be the beginning of a journey I could have never imagined. We dealt with challenges that started very early in his life. My sweet little baby moved into a spirited toddler. He was silly, and he had a mind of his own, and he couldn't be held down by rules and discipline. I remember one day I walked into his uh, preschool to pick him up, and surprisingly, they would pull me aside and say, we think something is wrong with Cole. He seems really aggressive, and he disrupts the class a lot. We'd like you to, ha we'd like you to have him tested for ADHD. My active, independent little boy, I knew he was full of energy, moved constantly, and had a tough time focusing, but he was only four years old. We wondered, and we talked about it, and finally took him in to get tested. They were right. He was diagnosed at age four with ADHD. According to the 2010-2011 National Survey of Children's Health, 194,000 preschoolers had an ADHD diagnosis. A similar situation would unfold in first grade. He was disrupting the class and he was unable to learn to, due to his symptoms of inattention. This time, the teacher would pull me aside and say, he wasn't, if he wasn't put on medication, they'd have to figure out another route for him. Again, I had a similar reaction. I was slightly confused. Medication for a six-year-old? Really? These would be our first introductions to our mental health system and the struggles, confusion, and misinformation that exists. We would later go on to concerns with anxiety, depression in middle school, and finally a mood disorder diagnosis in high school. I don't say these diagnoses lightly. He struggled with sadness, self-harm, fitting in, finding his people, being bullied, bullying, figuring out who he was, being the class clown, battling with his own thoughts, trying to make good decisions, and all of this worried and affected our entire family. We knew by this point that something was affecting him, something else. It seemed almost every aspect of his life was such a struggle. Well, things didn't get easier. At age 19, he was beginning to struggle with substance use. It was affecting his ability to keep a job, his friendships. He had lost his longtime girlfriend. His roommates would find it impossible to live with him and he seemed lost. He had seen plenty of therapists and doctors over the years, but at this point, we decided to do a new evaluation with a psychiatrist. 
he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It shouldn't have been a surprise, considering his ups and downs and his history. It was tough to hear. For him, this diagnosis came as a relief. He knew he was struggling, but he didn't know why. He had been self-medicating, and that was escalating. Okay, good, I thought. We can begin our plan of action now. We have a diagnosis, some answers, and we can come up with some solutions. We were hopeful. Cole was loving, funny, had the ability to develop some amazing friendships, gave the best cozy bear hugs, and knew how to express his emotions so easily. We were excited to experience the best parts of Cole again, to have quality time with him and laugh and enjoy life with him. If you've ever cared for someone who has addiction or mental illness, you may have asked yourself, why is this happening? Why my person? It doesn't seem fair. Why can't they quit? Why can't they just get better? Why don't they just pull it together? We asked all those questions over and over. As we would learn, it doesn't work that way. These are the whys, the questions we don't always have answers for. Many times, there doesn't seem to be a clear reason. Like any disease, some possibilities include genetics, environment, and unhealed trauma, lifestyle, or many other reasons that are out of our control. We couldn't take an x-ray, couldn't give him an MRI or a blood test to find out where this began and how it developed, or how it was even progressing. Things would get worse. The years after his bipolar diagnosis were the toughest years I've ever gone through. Sleepless nights, phone calls from him for help, days we weren't able to find him, wondering where he was staying, who he was with, calls from him for money, food, rides, calls from him crying, lonely and scared. These ups and downs went on for five years. His needs during this fluctuated from wanting help, but then changing his mind and not wanting to see us at all. When he did have needs, often they seemed urgent. Resources were difficult to find. We would scour the internet, not really knowing exactly where to begin. We found that open beds for treatment have waiting lists. Affordable housing is like finding a needle in a haystack. Therapists, counselors, psychiatrists have very long waiting lists. There were so many hoops to go through, and many times, on the other end of the phone line, when we would call for help or resources, we would hear, no, sorry, we can't help you, or we don't handle that. Cole was now 24 years old, almost the same age as me when I had him. He was living with bipolar disorder and addiction, not taking his medication, he had been homeless, attempts to live at home with us, lived in shelters and abandoned cars with friends, and finally landed in government housing. 
he had experienced inpatient substance treatment, trips to the psychiatric unit, therapists, psychiatrists, medications, police calls, overdoses. This lifestyle is tough, and nobody wants it. Nobody wants to struggle this way. It's not a choice. How does this happen to someone like him? Someone who has family, community, church, support? The answer? The face of mental illness and addiction, it looks like all of us. We learned through experience that addiction and mental illness does not care if you're rich, poor, beautiful, privileged, dress well, have a strong faith, have people that love you, if you're smart, gifted. It touches all of us. 7.7 million adults have co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and less than half get treatment. Well, it's now the beginning of 2018, five years since his bipolar diagnosis. He'd been through so much, and so had we. He had enough. He was tired, he was broke, betrayed, lonely, hungry. He was ready, finally. The system would break down numerous times over the years, and this time was no different. It was difficult to find an open bed. There were mix-ups with his paperwork. They'd forget to call him when a bed did open up. When asked if he'd like help, if I could come up to Duluth and support him in any way, he said he really wanted and needed to do this on his own this time. So in April 2018, he did it. He stuck with it and would finally leave for inpatient treatment. This was the answer. Our prayers had been answered. We could breathe a sigh of relief. He was safe now. We had, we had made plans for his aftercare, where he would stay, the community he needed to be in, supports he'd need to continue to stay in recovery. After he was admitted to inpatient treatment, he started to feel sick. So sick that he couldn't get out of bed. When I went to visit him after he'd been there for about a week, he was having difficulty walking. He seemed to have aged a lot, and he had lost a lot of weight. And he was, in fact, worried about his own health. At the treatment center, which is here in Minnesota, they told us he was just detoxing. He would be just fine. He wasn't getting better, and he wasn't fine. The following week, when my daughter and I went to visit him, we were turned away and told he couldn't have visitors because he wasn't participating. That was his punishment. After about two and a half weeks in treatment, he received bad news. It was a real blow to his recovery. They were forcing him to leave treatment because he wasn't able to get to groups and therapy unassisted. Apparently, a rule at treatment or at least at this treatment facility. He requested a wheelchair or a cane. No, he needed to get to groups and therapy unassisted. So they told him he needed to leave. The next day, they drove him back to his apartment and dropped him off. Not at the doctor, 
not at the hospital, not at the clinic or the emergency room, but to an apartment that he no longer rented. Imagine if you went to a treatment center or the hospital for cancer. You wanted to heal and you wanted to get better, but because you weren't healing while you were there, because you, weren't, because you were sick or you weren't able to participate in the way that they anticipated you should, they asked you to leave and dropped you off back at home or at a friend's house with no further instructions. What would happen to you? What would happen to your cancer, to your outlook, and to your health? I received a message from a friend of his the next day. Do you know where Cole is? You see, when you have someone you love out in the world, vulnerable and out on their own, and you feel like they're living an unsafe life, you figure out ways to track them, make sure that they're still alive. I lived in fear most of the time those years, but my tracking said Cole had been off the grid for 12 hours, which never happened. I had just made a comment that morning that something was wrong with Cole. I couldn't get a hold of him. No, I don't know where he is, but this must be bad. She said, you need to get up here right away. He's in the ICU. I didn't ask any more questions. My daughter and I jumped in the car and drove the two-hour drive up to Duluth and without breathing, probably, and drove faster than we ever had. The night after Cole was dropped off, at his old apartment by the treatment center in April 2018, he would call 911. He couldn't walk and felt like he was unable to move from the neck down. Cole would discover through a quick blood test in the emergency room, he was struggling with a type of staph infection, MRSA. We were about to learn about the effects of the opioid addiction epidemic and the destruction that it can cause. I could spend the entire evening providing you information about the opioid epidemic and destruction that ha is happening in America, but I'll save that for another time. MRSA is a type of staph infection that is resistant to certain antibiotics. His hospital stay was traumatic for all of us, his friends, family, and even the staff at the hospital. This could have been prevented if caught earlier, if someone had believed him at the treatment facility, listened, cared. We had high hopes for recovery this time. We trusted that he was in the right place and being cared for. During these early days in the hospital, we were able to talk with Cole and just be with him and those days were a small gift, a gift I'll cherish, as we had no idea what was ahead. A few day, after a few days, Cole still wasn't getting better. The MRSA was difficult to fight. There were lots of tubes and machines and oxygen, antibiotic cocktails, pain medications. After a few days in the hospital, it was decided that he needed to be intubated. He was having a very difficult time breathing and his oxygen levels were very low. He also needed some tubes inserted into his lungs to drain off some fluid. As we gathered in the waiting room down the hall during these procedures, all of a sudden we heard alarms, bells, 
we saw flashing lights and people running through the halls in the ICU. This wasn't an uncommon sight in ICU, but a pastor would come into the waiting room and join us, and she told us in her gentlest, kindest voice, I'm so sorry, but the emergency is cool. Stay here, and I'll find out more information for you. How can this be? I thought they were doing a procedure to make him better. This would begin a string of tense, terrifying days. Cole was having a heart attack. He was in cardiac arrest. They worked on him, CPR, defibrillator, giving him blood, and more. He would be without oxygen for 45 minutes. Our heads were spinning. What now? How did this happen? Was there a mistake? No time to think about that now. As soon as we had caught our breath, a doctor came in and told us she was going to be taking him to another building for emergency surgery to remove his spleen. Was he strong enough for surgery? I didn't think he was strong enough for that. There was no choice. He wouldn't survive without the surgery, she told me. He was losing a lot of blood, and it appeared to be coming from his enlarged spleen. It was a lot to take in. While he was in surgery, we waited, walked the halls, tried to be strong, hold it together, but then falling apart and crying, holding our breath and praying. A few hours later, surgery was over. It didn't go as planned. And we were given more difficult news. The doctors came to the waiting room and said he had had another heart attack during surgery. But they were able to revive him, remove his spleen, and now we would wait. I don't need to tell the mothers in this room or the mothers that are listening how traumatic it is to see your child go through something like this. I felt helpless. From here, we would have to wait to see if he wakes up, if he stabilizes, if he's able to breathe on his own, if the loss of oxygen affected his brain activity. We slept in waiting rooms, held his hand, put pictures up in his room, played his favorite music for him, and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. There were doctors for his heart, doctors for his kidneys, his surgeon, a doctor for his brain, and an infectious disease doctor. These days in the hospital were like watching a clock tick, second by second, although I never knew what time it was, day, morning, evening. I had no clue because we just watched and worried and waited. Some doctors told us to have hope. He was strong and he was young, and they'd seen young people pull through this type of thing before. Others, like his brain doctor, was not as optimistic. And it appeared that there was very little, if any, brain activity. The damage was too great. After two weeks of struggling with MRSA in the hospital, Cole took his last breath and passed away on May 8, 2018. Exactly three and a half years ago this week. Three and a half years ago, I lost my oldest son, that sweet baby boy, to an illness. The illness is called mental illness and addiction. I know many of you here tonight are nodding, yes. I know that illness too. 
You may have your own story, and you'll be able to relate to parts of my story, and for that, I'm so sorry. My firstborn child, this can't be happening. This just can't be how his story ends. He's too young. He was getting help. He was ready. He has so much to do and so many people that love him. Is this really happening? I had grieved losses for this child for years as we realized plans for him wouldn't work out. Some of his dreams for himself would be put on hold or wouldn't be achieved. As his mental illness and addiction advanced, I had tried all the things you can think of to get the real him back. We would have periods of hope, a glimpse of small successes, weeks of sobriety, days of calm. But we learned to be cautious and careful. But this grief, this time, this was different. It felt so final, no more hope, nothing to cling to, no calls to make, just loss. The whys, should-haves, and the could-haves are all pointless and worthless. Don't get me wrong, we went there. We questioned everything. Don't stay there. We do what we can with the tools we have at the time. We can't see what's to come. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't have a map. There's nothing that guides us in this journey. Towards the end of his life, I just loved him and spent time with him and talked with him and loved him even more. That change and time with him was a gift from God, and I know that now. But at that moment, during that time of loss, I couldn't see any gifts or blessings, only devastation and sadness. The pain I experienced was like no other. It was physical, emotional, spiritual. The pain was so powerful that it scared me. I had never felt this before. The pain of being ripped away from your person is like nothing else. I wasn't sure I'd be able to go on to be the same, to ever get out of bed again, and I didn't. For a while, I just stayed there, in bed, not knowing what to do, how to move forward, or if I should. Grief comes in many forms, and everyone here tonight has experienced it in some way. Maybe not through the loss of a child, like I did, but losing a job, life transitions, death, divorce, loss of friendships, loss of a pet, a move. If you're walking along and suddenly you fall in a dark hole, you can't get out unless someone brings you the ladder. It's too deep, it's too far down, too dark. It takes intentional steps to go through this process to feel healing. And it is not done in isolation. There are two emotions that I have wrestled with for years, fear and pain. They, are very, they were very strong and prevalent when Cole was homeless, when I, did, when I didn't know where he was, when I didn't know how to help him. They are very useful for humans, but in short bursts and for a specific purpose. For instance, if you are being chased by an alligator, fear can be a very useful emotion. It is going to strike up your adrenaline and you are going to move really fast. Or if you, are experience a, if you experience a pain in your leg, 
it could indicate that something is wrong with your leg or something in your body, and it can drive you to call the doctor and figure it out, leading you on a path of healing. Pain can let us know that there is, something, there is a more serious issue and that we need to address it. When we neglect to take care of, or we're stuck in it, when we experience pain or fear for an extended period of time, then we begin to look for relief or coping techniques. It's a natural response. We want the pain and fear to end. We want it to go away. It almost feels like we can't take it anymore sometimes. This is when pain and fear start to cause damage. This is when fear or pain are not benefiting us anymore. They're damaging us and will continue to cause damage. Where does fear come from? Abuse, instability, loss of a job, money problems, homelessness, loss of security, worry, anxiety, and stress. And examples of pain are physical, emotional, trauma, heartache, loss, grief, and sadness. Some fear and pain come from things we carry with us from childhood, things that happen to us and around us, experiences that we witnessed. We can begin to look to negative coping techniques like avoidance, isolation, substance use, and negative behaviors. They sneak up on you. You may not even notice it's happening. These can lead to lost relationships, difficult and challenging life, mental health struggles, physical problems like heart disease, stroke, immune issues, and addiction. I wanted to find a healthy way to cope, but I didn't know how I would ever get past fear and pain, ever. From the book Addiction Nation by Timothy McMahon King, he says, Addiction is driven by a desire to escape pain. For some, that pain is physical, but for others, it's emotional, psychological, even spiritual. Poverty, isolation, and hopelessness are all types of pain from which addiction offers a momentary escape, but at a great cause. Addiction, at its heart, is the pursuit of something good that goes wrong. This may seem very, very basic to some of you, pain and fear and the results of it. This is just one aspect that challenges our mental health. Genetics, our physical and mental structure, and many other things come into play. Things that may be more difficult to manage. But I wanted to point out how the root of unresolved pain and fear can lead to worse things, and I was dealing with both of these. Why do I share this story with you? Most of you in this room, I don't know. I've just disclosed a lot of feelings, experiences, and emotions to people I don't have a relationship with. It's because I know that stories are how we learn, how we encourage each other, break stigma, and how we grow closer as a society. I want you to know that you're not alone. We've been through it, too. We need each other, community, help in tough times, and we can't be afraid to ask. The price is too high. 
If I can help people in this journey, if I can reach people and let them know, you're not alone. You're not out here by yourself. You're not the only one. There's help. My son was not alone. I was not alone. So many people are hurting in search of solutions, help, and hope. Addiction, substance use disorder, mental health concerns, physical illness, trauma, can and will happen to all of us. It's in every family tree, every neighborhood, every school, every church, every workplace. We're humans. We have brains and bodies and emotions, and they're all connected. When one part is struggling, so do the other parts. Every one of us goes through tough times, trying situations that bring us to our knees and make us question our well-being. So how do we cope? How can we manage these difficult situations? I got a crash course in coping. First, here are some statistics that just came out last month from Mental Health America. Youth mental health is worsening. One in five adults experiences mental illness every year, 20% of us. Suicidal ideation among adults is increasing. The number of people looking for help with anxiety and depression is skyrocketing. 700,000 drug overdoses since the year 2000, and it's picking up speed more and more every year. One in five adults reports using illicit drugs at least once. Over 10 million people misuse, misuse opioids in a year. And 60.2%, over half Americans aged 12 years and older, currently abuse drugs. That includes tobacco and alcohol. Well, I could go on and on with data. Our mental health is on a spectrum from wellness to illness. And it can be challenged from specific situations straining our mental health all the way up to genetic mental illness and many things in between. And it needs care. We have spent the past year and a half watching the ticker on our TV count the cases of COVID. But there's another pandemic going on. And we need to start paying attention. There's work to do. So let me share what I've learned by walking with my son in his mental health journey and addiction battle and through my own journey with grief. Number one, seek help. I know, I knew I was going to need help. My brain was not thinking clearly at that time. I was so certain that no one else had gone through this. I was positive. How could they? This was so horrible. My head was telling me that there was no one else that would understand this. When you're in a state of shock and exhaustion and grief, you don't know how to organize yourself, make phone calls, search for help. It's too difficult. I needed help. This was big, wasn't it? I think it was. Someone throw me a ladder. I knew I wasn't thinking clearly, but this seemed like a huge pit that I'd fallen in. I could stay here. That seemed pretty easy. I could just stay in the pit, roll around and complain. 
I feel really bad about all the things that happened. I deserve that. I let myself just be, sit in the pain for a while, journal, try to understand what had happened, and sort out my own thoughts. It still all seemed too confusing. I finally called my therapist, who I had been working with for a few years. She had helped me through so much over the years, especially with that fear and pain part. She helped me understand how to be a mom to my son, how to set healthy boundaries for myself, and so many other things. That seemed like a good first step. I tried talking with friends and going to grief groups, reading books, but that wasn't quite right. Don't be afraid to keep searching. Don't give up until you find things that really fit what you need. I eventually found help in my therapist and a support group just for survivors of an addiction-related death. Thanks to Terry, my therapist, and Gloria, and her support group called A Different Kind of Grief. There is help out there for you. Number two, seek God. All right, God, where are you? You created this mess. This is all you, damn it. You better figure this out. Why would you do this to me and my family? You better show up and help me. I'm lost. I don't know what to do. Where are you? I need you. Good news. We are never alone. Never. How many of you believe in miracles that happen today, now? Do you ever wonder, is God present? Does he hear me? How do I know if God is working in my life? When I've had really tough times in my life, those strong pinch points where I feel backed into the corner, I have nowhere to turn, when I'm feeling frightened, uncomfortable, trapped, and I don't know how to get things figured out and get back on track again, when tragedy has hit, when I feel like no one can understand this, or I don't know where to turn, when I've been the most vulnerable, almost ready to throw in the towel, that's when God appears for me. That's when the messages start to come. Now, maybe that's because I'm not really listening the other 99% of the time. Maybe it's because I'm finally seeing and hearing because I'm so desperate for direction. It's probably both. In the past, I have heard God through other people. You know those moments where you get goosebumps? When someone shares something with you and you just know, like, that was not an accident. That was, what is going on? God puts people in our path all the time. Sometimes the idea comes to my mind and speaks to me in my head. I know it's not me because some of these things just couldn't come from me. I don't have enough information or I don't know the resource or the idea is foreign to me. It's God who is directing me. Sometimes you can hear God in a song just at the right time. An image that appears just when you needed it. A call from someone you really needed to hear from. Or a dream that you think about all day and wonder, what does that mean? I encourage you to listen. I mean really listen. Set some, side, some t- quiet time aside every day and let your guard down. 
open up about how life is going. Ask yourself, how are you today? Then just listen, and you'll know. Many of us have experienced healing from an illness, a tough situation, or a tough patch in life. We've been able to recover, been able to move through it, and thought, wow, thank God. I haven't been given any extraordinary skills, and I am definitely not lucky. I have been healed in many situations, noticed this miracle, this grace, and have been made whole because of that. The key is noticing, recognizing, and making that transition to wholeness, being grateful for the gift. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is only temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 Stop looking outside for distractions, avoidance, pain relief, excitement, calming, comparisons. Look within. Dig deep. It's not a quick fix. It's a slow process of growth. It's a journey and one that's worth it. One of these God moments came to me this week, and I want to share this with you. I um, met a new friend last week, and um, she also lost her son four years ago. And uh, she mailed this to me, and I just got it in the mail the other day. It is called Brave Enough by Cheryl Strayed. And uh, I just think um, (laughs) this is one of those things where I opened it and thought, thank you, God. I want to read, it's just a little book of quotes and little short little snippets. When you recognize that you will thrive, not in spite of your losses and sorrows, but because of them. That you would not have chosen the things that happened in your life, but you are grateful for them. That you will hold the empty bowls eternally in your hands, but you also have the capacity to fill them. The word for that is healing. Thank you, Colleen. And number three, seek you. Seek yourself. I was stuck in the forest somewhere. It was dark there. I didn't know how to get back onto my path. I had to figure out where, how to be there for my other two children, my husband. I had work, friends, I volunteered, and more. I knew my mental health was struggling, and if I didn't get some, if I didn't take some intentional steps, it was going to get worse. So first, I needed to get out of bed. <laughs> there, I'm up. Great. Next, how about a shower? Take small steps. When we think about the entire journey, it's too overwhelming. Besides, it doesn't usually turn out the way that you originally imagined anyway. I had to actually write these small things down every day. Get up, take a shower, eat. I put them in my calendar. So just one small move at a time, and then don't stop. Here are some of the intentional changes I made. Some I discovered by accident, 
some I knew about and implemented. And all of these are still critical to my healing today. First, what if we could spend a little time each day just letting go of everything? You can. Take off the pack. Release your pressure valve. Drop your shoulders. Breathe. For those of you that practice meditation, breathing, or other relaxation techniques, it feels great, doesn't it? Yeah. We don't need more to do in the day. It's a stressful and conflicting world. So I had to replace some things that I was doing that weren't productive, or may even be damaging and distracting, with new practices and habits. Second, use the tools available to you. There are so many resources out there, books, podcasts, apps, trainings. We're in a time of information overload. So where do you start? I recommend starting simple and small. Uh, go at one simple thing a day, just for you. It could be something as simple as uh, reading the Bible for five minutes. Turn off the TV, turn off the phone, turn off your computer. You can do it anywhere, in your car, at work, at home. Listen to a short podcast that is about self-improvement. Read for 10 minutes, journal, walk. Walking helped me a lot. So this is where we can get overloaded. There's so much to do. There's physical care, there's family, there's mental health care, there's self-care, work, errands, and the list goes on. Again, pick just one small thing and replace it with something you're doing that's not as productive. It'll start to grow in you, and you'll start to notice little changes in yourself, and you're going to like it. Third, surround yourself with quality people. People that care about you and care about themselves. Next, how you talk to yourself in your head is so important. Say nice things to yourself. Tell yourself positive messages. Ask yourself, how are you really doing today? How are you doing right now? Are you okay? Check in on yourself. You may want to do this all day long. So this one is really important. Forgiveness. Holding on to anger, pain, resentment, sadness, grudges, bitterness, it's destroying you. Don't do it for them, do it for you. Don't keep drinking the poison. Tell yourself right now, I'm going to forgive and just let it go. And that includes forgiving yourself. Start to notice the beauty, the miracles in the world. As you heal, you're gonna see it. It's everywhere. Life is not black and white. It's not clear or live just one way. There's more gray area. There are lots of maybes and what ifs. Don't get stuck in absolutes. You close yourself off to too many things, ideas and people. Keep your mind open and really listen to people. God is speaking to you through others. And last, the gift is that you'll be able to help others. This world needs people like you. Healers, leaders, workers, whatever your skills and gifts are, the world needs you. None of this is easy, and it involves change and intention, but it's worth it. The life you want and were intended to live is just on the other side. So number one, seek help. 
Number two, seek God. Number three, seek you. And last, seek purpose. I am happy to say that three years ago is not where Cole's story ends. About three weeks after my son passed away, I had a meeting at the Evangelical Lutheran Church Synod office here in Minneapolis. I had been serving on a grant board and we were scheduled for a grant review meeting. Once I got there, I was asking myself, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. You should be back home in bed. This is too soon. As I got off the elevator, a staff person from the office ran up to me and said, I'm so sorry we heard about your loss, your son. And she shared her own story of how she had lost her brother when he was younger. I'll always remember how kind she was to open up to me and greet me and remind me that I'm not alone. I'll be okay. Our stories are important. It would become clear that this meeting was intended just for me. A grant request came across our table from a small nonprofit that combined mental health and faith communities. It was one of those moments where I got goosebumps and I had a lump in my throat and I think I was sweating a lot. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is happening right now? This, this is what I needed. Where has this organization been? I knew I needed to meet these people that were doing this great work. A month later, I was sitting in a coffee shop meeting with one of the founders, Diane. After our meeting, she asked me to serve on the board. And I thought, oh, it was too soon since the death of my son to take on a responsibility like that. I kept being tugged, thinking about it, having that shove on my back. And I finally said, yes, I could serve in this way. I would just go slow, not overcommit. I had learned so much over the years, and I could share that. While serving on the board, Mental Health Connect had become very important to me. It was what I needed all those years, someone to guide me, find resources, help me understand what we were dealing with, navigate the mental health and substance abuse resource system. I knew now I was not the only one. I had heard plenty of stories. And there were so many individuals and families that needed this too. This organization was part of the solution. And I just wanted everyone to know about it. After being on the board for about a year, the organization was struggling. Donations were low. There was little visibility. And it seemed like it needed more goals or more direction. The organization was praying for an answer. They didn't realize it, but I was also praying for my next step. I had a strong feeling that I needed to be working somewhere else, that my purpose was going in a new direction and the, pat the, and the pull was strong. I had always worked in finance, financial advising, accounting, leadership, and for the past 20 years, coincidentally, I had been at Christian organizations. During a particularly tough meeting between me and God, I was feeling a push, a shove, to move onto a new path. Do you want to know what I did? I questioned it. I tried to push that feeling aside and ignore it. If you're searching for guidance and healing, best to not do it that way. Thankfully, God is more persistent than me. 
I called Diane that same day and I said to her, I think all Mental Health Connect needs is a leader, someone to take the mission to the next level. About a week later, I was the first executive director of Mental Health Connect. I knew this organization was exactly what was missing for so many people. It was an innovative process that was missing in our faith communities and in the mental health world. They had the tools, resources, and structure to help people heal. Without realizing it, Mental Health Connect had been part of my healing process and exactly what I needed in so many ways, purpose. Mental Health Connect is a collaborative nonprofit that serves faith communities and people. It began in 2014 with a small group of faith communities and a grant. Today, we work with over 30 communities joining together to learn and work together on mental wellness, health, and supporting our community. I'm happy to report Mental Health Connect has experienced 70% growth for the past two years. It is based on three tools, navigation, collaboration, and education. First, our navigation line is free and confidential. You can phone, text, or call, or email. And you can talk to a real person. The person who picks up the phone is the person you will talk to. And they have experience and knowledge on mental health resources. And they're going to do the legwork for you. Our faith communities really care about people and meet monthly to hear professional speakers, learn new topics, collaborate on events, but most important, to take those tools back to their community and help people. And education is key to breaking the stigma around mental illness. When we're embarrassed, ashamed, or feel that there is no one to talk to, we aren't able to find the help we need. We provide education on topics like de-escalation training, suicide prevention, how to do deep listening, sharing of resources, and helping people find good next steps, and so much more. I'm so proud of this organization and the work we do together, the difference we're making, the over 100 volunteers that help others, the stories that are shared, and the advancements that we're seeing. I'm honored to work with a dedicated and talented team of people and provide direction to people like me and you and people who don't know where to turn, what their next step will be, and who need to find their path again. Our website is mhconnect.org if you want to check us out. In closing, faith over fear. I will not let pain and fear guide me, control me, I've li I'll live with faith, and I'm going to turn it over to God when I'm feeling afraid, anxious, or confused. I'm able to see the miracles, the interventions, and the slight hand on my back leading me in the right path. There are times when I sit back and I think about all the struggles and the days where I wasn't sure I could get through it. But after many experiences, I know it will be okay. I'm confident things will turn out not just for me, but for others. I have so much more to do, more to learn, people to meet, but this time, I'll try to do it without fear, apprehension, and forward-facing pain. I'll do it with confidence that I am not alone. I am going to experience more miracles, and I can't wait to see who is next in my path. 
And he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you whole. Luke 17, 19. Wholeness, healing, and wellness is available and meant for us all. It's there, ready for the taking. I challenge you. One, pick one small healthy habit. Start tonight or in the morning. Observe or journal how your life is changing and transforming. Two, be kind and empathetic because this life here is tough and everyone needs grace. And three, find purpose through your pain. Notice that you're not only healing, but you're being made whole. It changes everything. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to let Vicki rest her voice for a couple minutes. I'll make a couple of quick announcements. Um, and again, if you have questions, uh, you can come up after I'm done, if you're here in person, and speak them into these mics. Uh, I have been getting a bunch of questions from those of you who are uh, visiting us or, or with us on, on, online. Um, so hopefully we can get to all of those as well. Uh, let me just lift up our next event, uh, just so you can put it on your calendars. It's February 1st. Uh, as Vicki mentioned, it's um, Bishop Michael Curry. If that name does not mean anything to you, how many of you watched Harry and Meghan's wedding, the royal wedding? Yeah, he was the priest who officiated at that wedding. So he will be with us uh, early February. That's uh, a Tuesday night, which is unusual, but he's a very busy man, and it was actually pretty much the only day in the entire year when he could be with us. So please join us for that again, February uh, 1st, uh, 7 o'clock p.m. That is free and open to the public. Uh, if you'd like us to alert you to that event and other future events, uh, go to our website uh, where you can sign up for email alerts and also check us out on our social media channels and uh, like or share or comment on those. Um, let me say, too, a word of thanks. Uh, St. Philip the Deacon is proud to present these community events, uh, but they are not paid by the church budget. From the very beginning, I mentioned this is the 19th season, which makes Vicki our 92nd speaker. I did the math over there. Um, <laughs> from the beginning, uh, almost 20 years ago, they have been uh, supported entirely through the generous support of individuals and local corporations. Uh, all of those, I hope, are listed on the program. We're very careful about that. I hope we haven't left anyone out. Um, I'm not going to name all of them, obviously, but uh, a number of them are with us tonight in person and online. Will you join me in thanking them for making even, evenings like this possible? <clears throat> And I will say, too, um, uh, you know, I, I have been very careful from the beginning, I mean this sincerely, not to make the Faith in Life series any kind of bait and switch in any possible way. We give these events away to the community freely and openly as a gift, and I, I want to start with that. I do want to say, though, that um, part of the ongoing story of Vicki and of Mental Health Connect is intersecting with St. Philip the Deacon, um, actually starting in January of 2022. Uh, as you leave tonight, you may see language that Vicki has lifted up herself. It's the title of our next Capital Appeal, Being Made Whole, and Mental Health Connect is an important part of that appeal. Um, I mention that just for those of you who may be members of St. Philip the Deacon, you'll be hearing more about that this month. 
Um, and I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the fact that we are lifting up mental health over the next three years. Uh, again, those of you who have nothing to do with the church, I'm not asking you for anything, I promise you. But I'm lifting it up as an example of the way that this congregation tries to give back and uh, participate in relevant and important ways in the life of our community. So I want to say thank, to, thank you to our congregation. Uh, and again, just I, I, it would be irresponsible of me not to mention that connection, given that Vicki is, is here this evening. Okay, so let's take some questions for a little while at least, if there are any. Again, I have enough, honestly, I could probably fill a long time. Um, but if any of you here want to stand up, you're welcome to. Maybe to kick it off, I'll look at one of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. One just says, thank you for your courage and generosity in sharing your family's journey. Your experience helped me, helps me be more whole and ready to be more fully part of the world. So thank you for that comment. Um, let's see. Uh, do you have any resources for a teen with autism or for parents? We live in Blaine and have found in the past some churches don't walk the talk when it comes to understanding how having a child with autism affects the family. Uh, yeah, I, I would recommend, um, I don't want to get into all the resources tonight, but our navigation line is amazing at, um, so email, go to our website and fill out the, um, or you can call the phone numbers on there, but our navigators are amazing. Okay. Yeah. Um, someone asks, how do I get inspired to find purpose again? Um, how do you get inspired and find purpose? To find purpose, yeah. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, it's those small little steps. I think back on my journey and it didn't happen. Um, well, I didn't do anything. <laughs> uh, God did a lot of it, but uh, just doing those small little intentional steps every day, I think they start to grow. It starts out really small and all of a sudden you see it go like this and then people are put in your path. And again, make sure your eyes are open and you're paying attention all the time because uh, you don't want to miss it. I just want to make sure I'm not, okay. Um, one person asks, how can we work to make sure treatment centers truly have the qualified personnel or the best resources or methodology or tools? Um, they also say, there are way too many treatment centers in and out patient, sober houses, et cetera, that do harm in their attempt to make a profit. And they say, sorry for what you endured. Yeah, uh, that is a whole other avenue and we could spend probably all night talking about that. But um, treatment centers are categorized as healthcare facilities, although they don't have um, sort of the strict sort of regulation that uh, a physical health care facility would have. And part of the solution is really we have to start thinking of mental health like we think of physical health. Uh, it, it, they affect each other. When your mental health is struggling, so does your physical health sometimes and vice versa. Um, if you're in a lot of pain, that affects your mental health too. So um, there's a lot of work to be done in that world, definitely. And I, again, I thought I was the only one, and my son was the only one. 
that had experienced something like that at a treatment facility, but he is not, unfortunately. Um, um, <clears throat> good luck with this one. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not saying that to be flip. I'm saying that as a pastor who has had to respond to the same kinds of questions. Um, so one person asks, how do you reconcile feelings that God caused the pain versus God supports us through the pain? Can you read that again? Yeah, how do you reconcile feelings that God caused the pain uh, versus God supports us through the pain? Yeah. <laughs> well, at first, of course, like I said, I was really mad at God. Like, this is crap. You put me in, what are you doing? Like, this isn't fair. Um, but it was a slow, I, you know what it was? I was so desperate. I didn't know where else to turn. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know anyone that had ever gone through anything like this. And so I said, fine, fine, God, you, you figure this out. I don't know. I don't know anybody else, but I'll give you a shot. And um, it, he actually came through. So it is very, very, very difficult. And I'm not going to lie. I'm still mad. Mm. <laughs> I'm still angry. Uh, it still isn't fair. Uh, but there have been some miracles and some things along the way. Um, it's just, it's so odd how you can feel two opposite emotions at the same time. You can feel anger and love all at the same time. I was angry um, that he died, and I was angry at him for dying. But I also loved him and adored him. So it's just a progression and a journey. I have oh. a question. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, I'm curious how the whole thing affected the rest of your family? How did your marriage survive? And how are your other kids, how did your, your other kids handle yeah. the mess? <laughs> That's a good question. And I get asked that a lot. Um, we all kind of did our own separate healing processes. Um, my daughter went to a, a young adult grief group and um, my son did a, um, a grief group for children actually at Bethlehem Lutheran Church. And then he went to grief camp uh, that is through uh, that was through Fairview, which is now Brighter Days Grief Center, um, and so uh, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of talking, sharing stories. Um, now we're able to talk about you know fun times that we had with him, and we'll go to dinner on his birthday and on the anniversary of his death, and and just talk about how he changed our lives and how he affected us. And um, again, it doesn't take away the pain or the anger, or the other uh, negative emotions, but um, we're able to finally talk about it and laugh and, and, and enjoy those things. So yeah, we all did individual sort of journeys and healing, and um, we're all in different places, I would say, as far as that goes. And we all had different relationships with him. Um, this individual asks, uh, will you or could you, I guess, talk about non-mainstream treatment for mental illness? I am asking about treatment beyond the main hospital treatment protocol. They're all the same and don't work for my husband. Mm, NAMI? Is that what asking about NAMI? Um, she doesn't, he or she doesn't well, indicate whether they oh, just, just say. Alternative treatment programs? Alternative, yeah. Non-mainstream treatment um, beyond the main hospital treatment protocol. Yeah. There are, um, there are a lot of, alter if any of you have heard of Dr. Emmons, 
I know he's not in practice anymore, but he does presentations and speaking. Um, and he talks a lot about alternative healing practices. Um, that would be something you could Google, uh, Dr. Henry Emmons, and he's here in the Twin Cities. And um, it, you kind of get on a bunny trail then and you can lead, it, lead you into other areas. But there are a lot of people doing alternative things. We've talked about it. We meet every week, the navigation team, and we kind of come up with different um, sort of things that are out there right now that uh, people are trying. Um, again, I would encourage them to call or text or email our navigation line. Which leads, um, again, unless there are more questions here, and I, I'm sure Vicki is going to be happy for those of you who are here in person to visit with you out in the narthex following this. Um, for those of you who are joining us online, you're certainly welcome to reach out to us at St. Philip or uh, to Vicki or the team at Mental Health Connect at the uh, URL she mentioned. Uh, but so final question for you, Vicki. And then after she's done, those of you who are here, try to remember not to applaud wildly right away because I'm going to come back up and I'm going to give her a gift and then you can applaud wildly, okay? I don't want to exhaust your hands. Um, I've learned through hard experience. Um, so final question, Vicki, is can you describe what the volunteer opportunities are at Mental Health Connect? Yes. Um, we have volunteer navigators. So if you have worked in the mental health field or you have personal experience navigating the mental health world, um, that, those are our navigators. Um, we also have people who are called ambassadors, and they are the liaisons between our churches and Mental Health Connect. So we're exchanging information all the time. We're getting information out to them so they take it back to their church and then um, bringing it back to us, how we can help our churches uh, grow and fill the need that they have. And then we also need advisory board members if people are interested in being on our advisory board. And we have an outreach team as well that uh, helps us figure out how to reach out into the community better and um, so there's lots of opportunities. And they can email me directly for that. that would Do you be want great. to give them your email address? Or? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I said, Do you want to give them your email address? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd Just be great. Like, what, you want to say it? V. Elliot. So it's at two L's and two T's. V E L L I O T T at mhconnect.org. Okay. And hearing no more questions, and nice work on not applauding. Thank you. Um, we have a small gift for you, Vicki. And I do want to say uh, thanks to all of you for coming out in person. This is, this is actually only our second event in person since uh, the pandemic. And uh, again, I'm aware that uh, it takes some courage to come out into big groups. So thanks to you for coming out. I want to say thank you to all of you who have joined us virtually. We're so grateful uh, for your presence as well. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in February. But in the meantime, I want to say a special thanks to Vicki. And we've got a little plaque here that I hope you will display proudly somewhere that says, with thanks to Vicki Elliott for bringing faith to life. So Vicki, oh, thank, thank you. you so very, very much. Thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. And again, she'll be in the back if you want to greet her personally. Thanks again for coming, everyone.